0: Hello there and welcome back to peace in their time episode 97 bolshevik terminus having taken a break for a few weeks today we return back to the action of the russian civil war's front lines and to be short there isn't a whole lot left to cover general Wrangel was bottled up in the crimea with the last major contingent of whites shielded by virtue of only having a five-mile land entry into his fortress The Crimean Peninsula was an ideal site for a last stand as it was connected to southern Ukraine only by the thin Perikop Isthmus and otherwise was bounded by the sea. Other than him, there were the flimsy non-Bolshevik governments in the Transcaucasus and Central Asian regions, all of which could be knocked over with a stiff breeze now that it was 1920 and their entente benefactors had lost all interest in them. There was still the Far East and the Japanese, but you all know well enough by now how that all turned out. Now, with treaties secured in the Baltic region establishing new status quos and the whites effectively swept them from the board, it was pretty much all over. Except for the fact that this is when the Poles entered the fray. Specifically, they entered much of the area of the Russian Empire taken by the Germans— which were then vacated and then never properly secured by either the Reds or the Whites. The prize and main target was Ukraine, where the local nationalist groups had taken so many beatings from both sides of the Russian Civil War that they were hard-pressed to meet a third challenge to Ukrainian independence. Now, I know I covered the short but important Russo-Polish War back in episode 38, And while I don't really want to cover all the details again, I think taking a look at the events and consequences from the Russian side will help better inform future events. Plus, if you've been listening to these episodes in sequential order, you've probably forgotten about the finer details by now anyway. In the aftermath of the German Empire's collapse in late 1918, the Red Army had deployed westward to try and scoop up as much of the territory they had lost to Brest-Litovsk as they possibly could. During that winter, things went well, and there wasn't really anyone around to stop them. But then two things happened. First, the Whites found their footing via Entente aid, and starting in spring 1919, nearly brought the Red Army to its knees. That kind of precluded focusing on the West. This breathing space allowed the Poles to organize, and very quickly, Joseph Pilsudski and his Polish legions were scrambling east. Pilsudski's ambition was to take as much ground as possible with a minimum of fighting and somehow bind the Lithuanians, Belarusians, and Ukrainians into a federation under his leadership. As you might remember, the big problem with that plan was that most of those groups were uninterested in working together and wanted to push their own interests over any idea of a team-up. And while in the north the Poles gained ground on account of the locals not having much in the way of defenses they got into a lot of trouble in western Ukraine. Enough so that Pulsetsky secured a truce with Lenin in 1919 in order to focus on his southern front. This was also during General Denikin's big advance towards Moscow, something Polsutsky was wary of. The Whites, as per usual, were resistant to doling out any part of the old Russian Empire. And while they knew keeping Russia's share of pre-war Poland was unrealistic, they weren't about to turn over Belorussia or Ukraine. Letting the Poles have their independence was bad enough to them. This dashed the hopes of the Entente, who hoped that the Polish army would act as the western wing of a grand anti-Bolshevik coalition. The Whites' own stubbornness, though, precluded that from happening, and Pilsudski preferred to deal with Lenin instead, even when they were fighting. Fun quirk of history... Pilsudski had helped provide the explosives intended to assassinate the Tsar in the bomb plot that got Lenin's older brother executed way back when. So, it isn't far off to say that Pilsudski and Lenin at least came from similar backgrounds as underground agents. Anyway, by early 1920, the polls were at kind of an impasse. The whites were clearly going down, and even the Entente was urging everyone to make peace. Behind closed doors, though, Entente leaders, especially among the French, were nudging Pilsudski to settle the border question by force of arms. During the 1919 Paris Peace Conference, the great powers had more or less settled on Poland's eastern boundaries, based on the strongest concentrations of ethnic Poles, which was deemed most in keeping with the national self-determination ideal. Too bad for that ideal, a lot of people really wanted to deprive the Bolsheviks of as much as they could, and that meant encouraging the Poles to press ahead eastwards. The official entente position on the eastern border question was adopted in 1920 with what was termed the Curzon line as Poland's eastern border, which was named after the British foreign secretary at the time. The line was roughly the modern Polish eastern border today, which is not a coincidence as Stalin successfully got everyone to recognize it during World War II. But support for the Curzon line came only after the Entente realized the situation in the East had gotten way out of hand. Lenin and the Bolsheviks, meanwhile, had come to the conclusion that an expansionist Poland on their doorstep simply wouldn't do, especially one backed by the Entente. There was also the fact that with the whites mostly destroyed, the fully expanded Red Army was free of existential threats. With millions of men under arms, it would be a shame to wind down revolutionary warfare at so early an hour. It also was seen as dangerous to stop the tempo of action as well. Always remember that for the Bolsheviks, their revolution was not limited to the borders of the Russian Empire. Sure, they were pragmatic and strived to avoid antagonizing too many parties at once, but the end goal was a global revolution. Even in the earliest days before the country's economy had been wrecked, Lenin's plan had been to harness a minimally industrialized Russia not as the ultimate prize, but rather as a springboard to the fully modernized communities of Western Europe. Yes, he had bucked the Marxist formula by not waiting for Russia to fully industrialize and urbanize, but that was with the expectation that their example would lead the rest of the world to follow. It was feared among the Bolshevik leadership that even if the revolution were successful in Russia, that if they stayed put in that one unit, no matter how large or populous it was, that its backwardness would economically doom their ambitions. A fear which was later borne out, as Soviet industry stagnated in the 20s and then became the obsession of Stalin in the 30s. In order to thrive, the revolution had to ignore the vanity of national boundaries and march outwards. Whether this was still possible by spring 1920 is somewhat doubtful, though. The most typical power fantasy for the communists has the Red Army marching through Poland and linking up with the German far left, or even swinging south and meeting the Hungarian Soviet state established in 1919. A big problem with that fantasy, though, is that it ignores the sequence of events. 1919 was when the leftist uprisings were breaking out in Central Europe, and that was the year the Red Army was in absolutely no shape to actually intervene. By 1920, those movements had been crushed by counter-revolution, and while many of their members had gone to ground, it's doubtful how much assistance they could have offered. I suppose one could blame it all on the Whites for launching the Civil War that the hopes of the revolution were dashed, but without their threat, Red Russia also might not have militarized to the extent where its commanders could even consider invading Central Europe. Regardless of the viability of exporting the revolution, 1920 was the year that the Red Army seemed most capable of doing it, and also when it looked like it was still possible. Believe it or not, the success of the polls actually wound up helping the Bolsheviks steady themselves a whole lot. The main problem facing the Bolshevik leadership in early 1920 was the sheer exhaustion and misery afflicting the nation. You would think that the populace would be less than thrilled about fighting a fresh campaign, which against most everyone else, That might have been true, but the Poles kind of pushed things too far and aroused great Russian nationalism, which is a brand of nationalism that held a lot of contempt for the Poles. In April 1920, Poland launched its big attack in Ukraine and by May had taken Kiev. The advance rallied the Russian people around Lenin and his party, seeing as how they were now the clear leaders of Russia it ironically fell to the communists to defend the borders of Holy Russia and repel the foreigners. The fact that the Poles struck first was an enormous propaganda boon to the communists as well, as they could reasonably paint themselves as the defenders. The fact that an invasion force of their own had been getting set up in Belarusia was an overlooked detail. The Entente governments, now facing the reality of a conflict in Central and Eastern Europe that they had privately encouraged, disavowed the Polish invasion. Even those Russians who had reason to despise the new regime rallied to the red flag. Probably the most notable individual was General Brusilov, the empire's greatest general during World War I, and who had been suffering in retirement since being removed from command in mid-1917. He had been in poor health, had been stripped of much of his material wealth, and had been forced by the government to share his apartments with those in need of shelter. However, he never joined the Whites, possibly because he hated Kornilov and Danikin, and they hated him, possibly because he figured they'd lose anyway and that the people had settled on the Bolsheviks. Very possibly, it was because his son Alexei had joined the Red Army, been captured by the Whites, and then executed when they found out whose son he was. Whatever the reason, in May 1920, he joined a special revolutionary military council headed by Trotsky. Even if his actual influence was limited, his presence sent a powerful message of unity. Brusilov, for his part, hoped to steer the Bolsheviks to further the interests of the Russian state, even in its changed form. This ambition was shared by nationalists all across the country once the civil war had died down. Once they came to grips with the fact that the white cause was lost, they realized that the easiest way to empower Russia was to support the new regime. The Bolshevik propaganda machine didn't miss the opportunity either, and the public messaging ditched the proletarian slogans in favor of appealing to patriotism and the national duty to preserve the country. The messaging, backed by the presence of Brusilov, did the trick. 14,000 ex-officers signed up to serve once again, and 100,000 deserters returned to their posts in the West. While they were quick to exploit the national sentiment, many in the leadership were taken aback by the outpouring of support. Zinoviev commented, We never thought that Russia had so many patriots. Which, hey, given the past six years, you really can't blame them for being a little surprised. The Poles also shot themselves in the foot by failing to actually destroy any of the Russian armies facing them in Ukraine. Their advance was rapid, no doubt about it. But the Reds' retreat was even faster, and the Russian troops very quickly regrouped after the Polish advance stalled after taking Kiev. Pilsudski, to his credit, saw through his own success and worried about his overstretched army. He had hoped that the nationalist Ukrainians allied with him under leadership of Simon Petlura would be of some help, but Petlura's forces never rose past 30,000 men at the best of times, and Ukraine was too shattered by 1920 to establish a proper national army. Meanwhile, the Reds had resolved to attack along two avenues. To the north, through Belorussia, the western front would be commanded by Mikhail Tukhachevsky, the young rising star, then only 27. He had proven himself in battles along the Volga and then on the Don during the final phases of the campaign against Denikin. Now he was tasked with retaking Minsk and pushing on to Warsaw. In the south, the southwestern front was commanded by Alexander Yegorov, but its most important component was the 1st Cavalry Army under General Budyani, with Voroshilov tagging along as political commissar for that army. Also, Yegorov's own commissar at the front headquarters was none other than Joseph Stalin, having recently been assigned to the area to oversee the counterattack. The appointment is going to be important in a bit, as Stalin was one of the Bolshevik leaders who was not swept up in the fervor around taking the revolution into the heart of Europe, and was anxious instead to finish off Wrangel in the Crimea as soon as the Poles were seen off. Wrangel's threat, though not existential, also couldn't be dismissed. Through spring and summer 1920, he managed to put the White Army back together again into a cohesive group of 40,000 soldiers. The presence of Budyani, Voroshilov, and Stalin together is also important because they were the leading figures of the clique within the Bolsheviks that were against the use of Czarist ex-officers, of which Tukhachevsky was one and was a special object of the trio's anxieties. Yegorov was also an ex-Tsarist officer, but made up for it by being obedient to them. But first things first, there was the little matter of the Poles sitting in Kiev and the surrounding area. That force was divided into two armies, the third, which was centered on Kiev itself, and the Sixth Army just to its south. On May 26, 1920, Budyani opened with probing attacks in the vicinity where the two armies met. Budyanyi's horsemen were met by a far smaller force of Polish cavalry, but despite enjoying a nearly 5-to-1 numerical advantage, Budyanyi was cautious. Remember that his cavalrymen were mostly Cossacks, and ergo weren't as receptive to patriotic calls to defend the motherland as the Russian rank and file were. They still had the mentality of the Civil War, and indeed, a unit of Cossacks did wind up fragging their officers and going over to the Poles, seeing service with them as the better deal. So he kinda had to treat his army with kid gloves. The fast-moving soldiers could do a lot of damage, but wouldn't last in long, stand-up fights. The story was repeated all across the front, as the Poles initially held firm in the first week and a half of fighting. But on June 5th, the Red Cavalry finally detected a gap in the Polish front lines and rode on through. The Poles, though, weren't beaten and simply closed the gap behind the Red Cavalry. Undeterred by being cut off, Budjani turned to old-school tactics and ordered his men raiding now that they were behind enemy lines. They ranged as far as Zidomir, almost 85 miles west of Kiev, before being intercepted by Polish cavalry. Over the course of days, the two mounted armies clashed over the expanses of western Ukraine. Meanwhile, Red Infantry had crossed the Neper River north of Kiev, which, coupled with the cavalry running wild in the, in the back lines, destabilized the 3rd Army's position. They were saved, though, when Yegorov and Stalin came to the conclusion that the 3rd Army was already trapped and that Budyany should swing south and bag the 6th Polish Army as well. However, Budyany was frustrated by the Polish cavalry and he turned instead back towards Kiev, linking up with the rest of the Red Army on June 10th. That same day, though, HQ ordered him back southwest, which meant the most potent weapon in the Red Arsenal was stuck chasing its own tail for a week while both Polish armies slipped away back west. Still, it was a Polish defeat, as by June, they had been forced back to their starting positions in the far western part of Ukraine. Pilsudski, having already committed the bulk of his forces to the southern operation, was forced to send still more troops, weakening his positions in the north. After advancing up and taking a breather to recover... Budjani resumed the offensive on June 26, taking Rovno in early July. He almost got in trouble when the Polish reinforcements arrived from the north and was nearly cut off from the main force, but was saved when Tukhachevsky launched his own attack to the north and forced the Poles to reshuffle yet again. That northern advance by the Red Army highlighted the quantitative shortcomings of the Polish army and why one should never invade Russia lightly. The Poles had fewer than 80,000 troops strung out across the miserable forests and swamps of Belorussia, while Tukhachevsky could pick and choose where to focus his 120,000 men. The Polish troops had been holding their isolated positions in Belorussia for months, and the average soldiers were far more concerned with returning home than holding on to their leader's conquests. The advance began on July 4th, and the Polish commanders wisely decided to give way immediately. Much like the Red Army in Ukraine some months previous, the Poles extricated themselves mostly intact to fight another day at the expense of giving up vast tracts of ground. The Polish plan was to flee back to the old German trench lines, which ran roughly along where the eventual Polish border would be established. After the massive advances of 1915, the northern German sector had settled enough that an extensive system of dugouts was constructed, and still remained in good enough shape to make use again after a little fixing up. The problem with that, though, was an army in headlong retreat wouldn't really have enough time to get settled onto a new line of defenses, and that's exactly what happened as Tukhachevsky's troops overtook the scattered Poles. By July 24th, the city of Grodno was in Bolshevik hands, and the modern Polish border had been reached. Warsaw practically beckoned. Back in Moscow, Lenin and the gang were feeling the euphoria of rapid victory and began buying into the pan-European dreams of revolution. On July 23rd, a Polish revolutionary committee consisting of ethnic Poles such as Felix Krzyzynski was formed in expectation of setting up a Bolshevik government in Warsaw. The Entente leadership by this point recognized the danger and their own inability to intervene. Wanting to draw down the conflict in a tidy manner, they presented a peace plan based on the Curzon line I mentioned earlier. Lenin turned them down, expecting a decisive win in Central Europe. Once again, the only Bolshevik leader not to be under the spell of euphoria was Stalin, still down in Ukraine with the Southwest Front. He didn't try and rain on Lenin's parade, but he correctly saw the danger of overextending, and also the little matter that General Wrangel was still lurking in the Crimea. In fact, lurking is understating it, as just as the Red Army had launched its counterattack in the south in the start of June, the Whites also made their move. This wasn't unexpected, and fully half of the southwest front's forces were focused on them instead of the Poles. But Vrongel was able to advance regardless, eventually reaching Maripool on the Sea of Azov by mid-September. It wasn't a real disaster, but it tied down half the Bolshevik southern flank while the supposed fate of Central Europe was being decided in Poland. Yegorov and Stalin directed a part of the Southwest Front facing the Poles on a more southerly course towards Lvov in late July and early August, opting not to link up with Tukhachevsky. This has been assumed to be a little bit of pettiness on the part of Stalin, not wanting to aid an officer he personally despised, but it did have its justifications. First of all, it really did appear Tukhachevsky didn't need the extra assistance. During the first week of August, the northern flank's own detachment of cavalry had already raced ahead of the main force and bypassed Warsaw and took the city of Toron, 115 miles northwest of the Polish capital and only 150 miles from Berlin. This, however, would be the high water mark of the Red Advance. The tables were turned and it was now the Red Army that was dispersed on a way too long front line and the Poles could concentrate their forces for an attack. The danger was not lost on the Bolsheviks and General Kamenov and Trotsky warned Tukhachevsky about Polish forces vanishing from the front lines and appearing to regroup elsewhere. Tukhachevsky, in response, refused to adjust his troop dispositions and instead demanded that half the southwest front be transferred to him so that he could add pressure on Warsaw from the south. Lenin ordered the transfers in command and that Yegorov was to switch his attentions to Dysvrongel in the Crimea and leave Poland entirely to Tukhachevsky. Stalin, though, overruled Yegorov's orders and told him to keep up the separate advance on Lvov without relinquishing the troops basically ignore Moscow's orders. Okay, so now this was deep into petty territory, but again, Stalin did have a point in that the troops Tukhachevsky was requesting were too far away to make a difference in the coming battle, and that moreover, they were totally exhausted and bogged down in the battles around Lvov already. On August 8th, Tukhachevsky began what he believed would be the final advance on Warsaw. His plan was not just to take the city, but engulf almost the whole of central Poland, which just strung his troops out even more. There was also the problem of supply. Railways in Poland were in awful shape after the whole World War I thing, and it fell to tens of thousands of horse-drawn carts to supply his western front. They did good work, but it wasn't enough, and the Reds became short of food and weapons. Communications also became disrupted over the long distances and lack of radios so many units kept advancing long after the situation had turned on them without realizing their danger. On August 16th, Pilsudski launched his last throw of the dice that he had been prepping for. His troops would advance into the most strung-out red sectors north of the Vistula River, where they had advanced past Warsaw. The start was underwhelming. Five Polish divisions advanced over 30 miles into what was supposedly Bolshevik territory without meeting a single Russian. Pilsudski himself thought it was a trap— but rapidly grasped the opportunity before him. A detachment of Polish troops closer to Warsaw struck at the more heavily concentrated Reds near the city and pinned in place the main force Tukhachevsky could actually control. A last Polish thrust south of the capital managed to pierce the Red Lines completely, meaning that both the left and right of the Western Front were compromised in just two days of fighting which, as it turned out, that was the same length of time it took for Tukoczewski to even be informed that a Polish offensive was underway. On the 18th, he ordered all his troops to condense themselves north of Warsaw and fight in a concentrated manner, which might have worked had he done that a week earlier, but now he was ordering around units that were already out of control. Over the next two days, the Poles would race around the Red Forces and leave their isolated commanders hopelessly confused as to just where in the hell they were supposed to go. Ultimately, they all decided to retreat, a course of action Tukhachevsky confirmed on the 20th. The unit of Red cavalry who had made it so far west was cut off and retreated into German East Prussia, where they were disarmed and arrested. Other Bolshevik forces were isolated in unfamiliar country and picked off as they ran. By August 25th, the Western Front was shattered, with 50,000 prisoners being taken, and overall the Front losing 100,000 total over the course of the campaign, just a little under two months in length. While Tukhachevsky could make good on those losses, he had lost the best troops he had available, and a fresh counteroffensive was out of the question. The scale of the defeat naturally led to a lot of finger-pointing. General Kamenev was definitely annoyed at his subordinates' insistence to spread out and make the battlefield as large as possible, and then ignoring all indications that a counterattack was in the offing. But the real scapegoat became Stalin, who had disobeyed direct orders coming from Moscow twice to transfer troops north. While the decision did make some sense, it was a blatant act of insubordination that only an old and useful Bolshevik like Stalin could quasi-get away with. His military days were numbered, though, Which even he recognized, and on September 1st, his offer of resignation from his military postings was accepted by the Politburo. The course of the remainder of the campaign didn't go any better for the Red Army. Pilsudski's troops took a three week breather and then struck again on September 20th. The Reds had pulled themselves together in the borderlands between Poland and Belorussia, but had lost too many experienced troops and too much equipment, and after a week of fighting, fell apart again. The Reds lost another 100,000 men, and the depression of defeat turned into panic. Suddenly, Ukrainian nationalists were again on the march towards Kiev in numbers, and Vrangl was crossing the Nepper further south. The western components of the Red Army fought a rearguard action while diplomats put together a truce in the city of Riga. By October 12th, this had been accomplished, and the Poles hunkered down in western Belarussia and Ukraine. Again, Lenin was forced to sacrifice land on the frontier to give him breathing room to deal with issues closer to home. But this time, at least, the sacrifice was much smaller. And it was now time to finally finish off the whites. General Froons, the commander who had broken Kolchak's advance westwards a year and a half previously, was given command of an enlarged southwest front totaling nearly 200,000 men. Wrangel was outnumbered 5 to 1 and had no way to stop the hammer about to fall on him. The White Army was rapidly worn down to half its strength and forced back across the Perikop Isthmus and into the Crimea, where they at least figured that such a thin strip of land could deny the Reds their numerical advantage. But even that didn't pan out, as a sudden cold snap and a rare occurrence of the tides in the waters surrounding the Perikop meant that the land that would normally be submerged was now exposed, allowing the White defenses to be bypassed. And when I say that this is rare... This occurrence only happens two to three times every century, so the Whites got ridiculously unlucky there. By November 9th, the Reds were in the open spaces of the Crimea, and the White defenses were gone. Over three days, between November 14th and 16th, 145,000 people were evacuated by what ships the Whites had available and the French Navy on the scene. They would establish a white emigre community in the Balkans, and Vrongel would reassemble his army to be put at the service of the Yugoslavians in a vain hope he would find a patron that would back him in his quest to take back his home. That never happened, but much of the community remained, which, after 1945, many of them were again in the grasp of the Red Army, and Stalin had neither forgiven nor forgotten them. With the last white army finally dismantled, there was now little facing the Reds in what had been the Russian Empire. The vast expanses of Central Asia did pose some difficulty, as remnants of Kolchak's forces that couldn't flee east instead went there in mid to late 1919. The white defeat, though, also opened the region to regular military aid from the west, and forces under General Frunze arrived in late 1919 to relieve the Tashkent Soviet, which had been holding out by itself virtually since the revolution had begun. The first order of business in Central Asia was dealing with the Transcaspian Republic that was still operating in the isolated cities of Southern Turkmenistan. This was a special priority on account of British agents still operating in the area. Disposing of the motley quasi-state led by moderate socialists didn't take long, and by October 1919, it was gone, and the railways running close to the Persian border were secured. More dramatic was the large-scale Basmachi uprising in Uzbekistan. Basmachi meaning bandit, which means it was kind of a catch-all term, really, in practice. Which was appropriate, as the Basmachi were composed of virtually every ethnic group and political affiliation in Central Asia. Back in 1918, the Tashkent Soviet had launched an expedition to seize the city of Kukan and the surrounding Fergana Valley, which had all gone according to plan, but also resulted in a terror that left 25,000 dead. This understandably left the populace resentful. But what really kicked things off happened after Frunze arrived with his army. Two centers of Muslim identity in Central Asia in those days were the cities of Kiva and Bukhara. Both were still governed by their emirs, which had been allowed by the Tsar and had not yet been challenged by the Bolsheviks. Lenin was initially hesitant to remove them as he didn't want his regime to interfere with the autonomy of the locals. That would be too imperialist. Plus, the local Bolsheviks knew it had spark a rebellion. Frunz, though, wasn't as idealistic and wanted the region secured. Neither city had real defenses, and Kiva was occupied in June 1920, and Bukhara was stormed over the course of four days, starting on August 30th. Bukhara especially was badly looted, and many items of great cultural worth were carried off. A pair of Soviet republics were proclaimed in the cities over the next few weeks, but the region was far from settled, even as Frunz himself was transferred to deal with Wrangel in the Crimea. Scattered bands would harass the Red Army over the course of the next year, and the low-level conflict would explode in November 1921 with the arrival of an unlikely leader. Enver Pasha was a former commander in the Ottoman Empire, and under his guidance had led it into World War I. That obviously didn't pan out for him, and after the Ataturk rose to power in Turkey— he decided to skip town and flee to Moscow, where somehow he gained Lenin's confidence. How? I have no idea. He wasn't a communist, and had spent his career trying to prop up the dang Ottoman Empire. But Lenin sent him to Bukhara all the same with the expectation he could help put down the rebellion. Enver, though, was a pan-Turkish nationalist through and through, and figured that he could form a new Turkish state in Central Asia. He and the troops who followed him went over to the Basbachi, and he attained a loose command of the movement. He organized his troops as best he could along the old German lines that he so admired, and for nearly a year did the cat-and-mouse thing with the Red Army. Unfortunately for him, he was never able to truly unite such a disparate movement, as the people who actually lived in Central Asia had their own aspirations totally separate from his vision of a united Turkish state with himself at the head. He was eventually ambushed by a detachment of Red Cavalry on August 4, 1922, outside Dushambi in Tajikistan, so very far from his home back in Anatolia. While the guerrilla war would continue for years, it would splinter out and the individual groups were slowly worn down by the Reds. The Bolsheviks marked June 4, 1926, as the day when the Turkmenistan region was transitioned to peacetime rule making it the region that was considered a war zone for the longest time of the Civil War. And that leaves the last region of the Civil War for me to wind down, the Caucasus. The three tiny republics of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan were too divided to support each other and were doomed to be picked off one by one. The Bolshevik case in the region also was strongly helped by the regime's good working relationship with Mustafa Kemal, the Ataturk, in Turkey. As Kemal was fighting for his life stopping the Greek invasion, Lenin in 1920 started diverting weapons to help equip his army. A grateful Kemal spoke warmly on Lenin's behalf to the Muslims of the Caucasus, and local support for Moscow increased. On April 30th, 1920, fresh off its win over Danikin's army to the north, the Red Army entered Baku and took its vital oil facilities intact. After that, there was a pause on account of the Polish invasion, and a truce was even made with Georgia on May 7, 1920. But as soon as the West was secured, Moscow's attentions turned back against them. For Armenia, there wasn't even a question of resisting the Bolsheviks. Kemal, indulging in that special brand of Turkish hatred, invaded them in September 1920. The Armenian government quickly transferred power to the Bolsheviks to save their people from another round of genocide, and were incorporated as another Soviet republic. Georgia, which had advanced the furthest in terms of nation-building, was left alone for a time, but not a long time. In February 1921, a Soviet republic was declared there too in advance of the Red Army's invasion. While that invasion only lasted two weeks, the ruling Mensheviks of the country engaged in a guerrilla war in the mountains that would take years to put down, and only concluded after a massive uprising was squashed in 1924. And much like Central Asia control of the Caucasus was fragile for years to come, requiring hundreds of thousands of occupying troops and kicking off a fierce debate over how the new nation would operate going into peacetime. Because yes, dear listener, it is finally peacetime for Russia. I've spent, I believe, 15 episodes now covering the October Revolution to the end of the Civil War, and it's time for a change, a new era. That's exactly what the Bolshevik leadership had to grapple with as well. The Civil War had been won, although their dreams of a pan-European revolution had been firmly checked. A proletarian base had been secured, something never done before, but now they had to make it into something. With war communism proven to be a costly dead end, a different tact was needed, although as always, controversy and disagreement would split the Bolsheviks against each other. Next week, Lenin and company plot a new economic course, and the groundwork is laid for what we will soon finally be able to call the Soviet Union. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.